Okay, I'm going to read scripture. <laughs> okay, good morning. My name is Holly Postma. <laughs> this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or you can use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from chapter 16 in the New American Standard Bible. Verse 1. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. And today we continue in the series in the book of Proverbs. The series is called Life Pro Tip. And today we're going to talk about plans. How many of you in this room are planners? Well, that's a pretty big group. That's why you're here at the early service. <laughs> the other people, they were hoping to be here. Because <laughs> that's the other option. There are planners and there are hopers. Um, I'm not talking about that kind of plan. I think thinking ahead. And a friend of mine used to say the five Ps of the success to life. He would say, prior planning prevents poor performance. I don't know if that's all true, but he's one of those and he's doing really well, so it must be kind of true. Uh, but I'm talking about plans of the heart. You know, the way we think and feel about the future and how though that kind of thinking and feeling comes to bear uh, on the way we live the present, and, and ultimately how we relate to each other, how we relate to God. As I was thinking about this, a couple of things this highlights for me. Uh, number one, talking about plans highlights the oppositional dynamic between human agency and divine sovereignty. Human agency and divine sovereignty by that, I mean, who's in control? Is it God or is it you? How are you allowed to make plans if God is God? By definition, he's the planner. You're the implementer. He's the chess player. You're the chess piece. So who is in control? Is it you or is it God? And if there is a kind of halfway uh, kind of a, a compromise, what does that partnership or collaboration look like? What does it mean that God does his part and then you do yours? It, does it sort of divide up that way? Is it that God helps those who help themselves? We've heard or thought about these things, I think, before. The other thing that it highlights is it highlights the mandate to be responsible that human beings are supposed to be responsible. There's agency that we have to be a steward of. And we also are living with this human tendency to avoid responsibility. 
This made me think about the idea of technology and information and connection that our world is today. Our world is so different than it ever used to be. Just even when I was a younger person, uh, beginning a relationship with Susie, we wrote letters to each other, like physical letters, on paper with a pen, and we mailed it. And then you had to wait a few days to get that letter, and the thoughts, the words in that letter were still relevant. You know, today, you hear about the news or read the news in the morning, and an hour later, it's already dated. There's already something new, right? And you feel like, well, that's old news. What's, what's really happening right now? Um, and this access we have to technology and information and access to each other, it raises the expectation and opportunity that we have to be in control and to be more responsible. Also, at the same time, it raises our opportunity and ability to be avoidant and escape reality. Isn't that funny? That somehow, because we have more tools at our disposal, we are more responsible, and yet we could also be more avoiding because we use those mechanisms to not actually deal with reality. You know, you think you're sort of a non-avoidant, engaging person because you're on social media tweeting away or commenting on Facebook and getting angry and engaging in the issues of our day. But that's not really you. That's just the triggered you. That's just you using that space to avoid the reality of who you really are and what's really going on in your life. So even the most confrontational people online are actually people who tend to be avoidant in reality. And so this idea of making plans highlights this oppositional dynamic between human agency and divine sovereignty and highlights our responsibility and our escape from it. I want to look at some verses together with you to see how this plays out in Scripture today. Number, verse number one, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. And this verse basically says, you can think all you want, you can plan all you want, you can be savvy, you can have access to resources and information and technology, you can do everything you can do. But at the end of the day, God has the final say, proper answer of the tongue, final say. Verse 4, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. You can do what you do. You can introduce factors, variables, angles into the mix. But somehow the final math of it, the sum total you end up with, is up to God. That there is this kind of arc to history. And all of the things we do or don't do don't add up to the arc changing. And that can feel very disempowering. Verse 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And that means that you can map out your life, but as you know, a map is not the terrain. 
How many of you have blindly followed Google Maps to only to realize that the terrain is different than the map? I learned this the hard way. I was going to the Costco. This was seven years ago when I first came. I was going to the Costco in Soto. And Google told me to make a left turn on to, I think it was fourth or first or something. Uh, but there was a sign that said, no left turn. Opposite me, coming the other way, we're both stopped at a red light, was a police officer. I saw him. I knew exactly where he was and what he was going to see. But Google told me to make a left turn. Do I doubt the sign or do I doubt Google? Of course I doubted the sign. I boldly made a left turn. And guess what the cop did? He made a U-turn. And he followed me for a couple of blocks and went on to ticket me. It was the first week in Seattle. The map is not the terrain. If you go on a hike with a map, the map and the actual terrain are very different. If you're in a relationship and you have a book you're following on how to navigate this relationship, that relationship is very different than the book. If you practiced and rehearsed a hard conversation, when you are actually face-to-face -face with the person and you're dealing with the three-dimensionality three of their story and their emotions, that's very different than the speech you rehearsed. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord who determines his steps. Is that true? That's true. So what ultimately happens always, always, always belongs to God. There's such a thing as divine sovereignty. This big word sovereignty just means that God is God and that we are not. That he can do anything he wants at any time for any reason. Now this word any is qualified by the fact that he is Moral. Morality is defined by who God is. It's not like God is subscribing to morality. Morality is a description of who he is. He is loving. He is good. And within his nature, when God does whatever he actually wants to do, it turns out it's beneficial for us. It turns out he would die for us. It turns out that he sees us and walks with us and he's faithful to us. That's not God being challenged but doing those things anyway. That's God being God. He's doing what he wants to do when he cares for us. But the truth is he is sovereign. Anytime, anywhere, anything, for any reason. Nothing can stop God. There's no rules that he subscribes to. There's an old movie, Sylvester Stallone, called Judge Dredd, years ago. And the famous line from that movie is, I am the law. Some of you people remember that. That's God. It's not like there are laws and then God has to obey the laws. God is the law. And if and when there is ever a clash between my will and God's will, God's will will always prevail, always prevail. He always wins. 
It's not a battle. It's a game that he's not playing. Maybe I'm playing. Maybe you're playing. He's not aware that there is a game. He just does his thing. Uh, there's this story that I used to obsess about. And, uh, you know, this clash between my responsibility, my action, the human factor, and then God's sovereignty, I used to always wonder, there's a guy, you know, uh, he got, this is an actual true story, I don't remember, this is from years ago. Uh, he got into an elevator, and there was somebody in there who tried to rob him, and they shot him point blank. But they shot him uh, right here in his midsection, and he happened happened to be wearing this giant belt with a big, thick metal belt buckle, and it stopped the bullet. So he goes down thinking he's shot, and the robber flees, but he's alive. And I used to obsess over this story. I used to think, how did God know that there was going to be a robbery? How did, how did God communicate to this man on some subconscious level to wear this belt that he normally doesn't wear? And how did he direct the gun so that it was right where the belt buckle is? Why was it on his shoulder or his heart or his head? Why was it right there precisely where the belt buckle was? And you've heard your version of this story. A guy goes to war and he gets shot, but then he, was a, he had a Bible in his breast pocket as a soldier, and then the Bible somehow stopped the bullet, or, or he happened to be wearing a certain kind of helmet. There's lots of stories like this. And then I would just lay there or sit there, or walk and marvel at the millions of things that had to be orchestrated for this exact precise sequence of events to happen so that somehow this one person is alive instead of dead. And then they tell this story, and their faith in God leaps forward. And then those who hear the story, their faith leaps forward. And I would think God somehow brings glory to himself. And then I would think, well, what about all the belts that weren't worn that day? What about the person who got shot in the head? Why didn't God direct him to wear a belt around his head? You know? What about the ten for every one person or a million for every one person that gets saved? What about all the shootings that are happening in this country? Just this year, dozens of shootings in the year 2019. Where was God then? Where was his intervening sovereignty then? That's a fair question. That's the tension that's brought up when you talk about human plans, human ingenuity, human responsibility versus the sovereignty of God. And one day I, I had some kind of answer that I still cling to today. It doesn't matter that God knew that this person was going to be robbed in the elevator and so he directed him to wear that belt buckle. It doesn't work like that because God's not dependent on some knowledge. I used to think, does God know the future? And I realized, no, it doesn't matter whether God know, there is no God knowing or not knowing. That's just the anthropomorphization of God. It's, it's me thinking he's like human. There is no process by which God comes to know something. I know scripture sometimes uses that language, but that's written in a way for us to understand. 
God's not dependent on some knowledge of the future or some knowledge even of your heart. The scripture says he knows before you speak. He knows everything. God, in, in fact, is knowledge. And the word sovereignty means that he is. And that's it. There's nothing else. God's not learning anything new. God's not knowing anything new. God's not using information to direct anything. He can do whatever he wants at any time for any reason. God didn't need a belt buckle. If God wanted to save him, he just stopped the bullet. In fact, maybe the gun would jam, or maybe there is no gun. It's just human imagination at work. But in reality, God is God. And the factors he uses, the reasons he has, what he does, what he chooses not to do, no mind can conceive. No heart can imagine. This is the fact that God is God. And that's what these verses highlight for us. To humans belongs planning. God doesn't plan. He is. Humans try to control things. God just is. He sees all, knows all, understands all, can do all. Reality itself means to be in him somehow, scriptures teach us. That in him we live and move and have our being. He is before all things, from him, through him, and to him. These are words and prepositions we cannot even begin to understand, and yet God is. Verse 2, I think this is an interesting verse. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Not only is God sovereign over what is happening, but he is sovereign over why anything is ever happening. He's tracking not just what I do, but why I do what I do. The second I think I understand my motive at this moment, years later I can come to understand there was actually even a deeper motive underneath that motive. And then years later I understand, oh, there was another even more central engine to why I did what I did. And so for every action, there are an infinite number of layers of motives. And so at any given moment, whatever level of understanding I'm at, it all seems pure to me. I think, ah, that's it. That's why I did it. And then God says, ah, there's a little more to it. Ten years later, oh, I got it, God. Yeah, I know, but there's more. When did God understand all that? Well, he never not understood it. He got it. He's just like super patient and super absorbent and super kind, and he just is walking with us the way a parent does with a child. Can you imagine even an earthly parent with such fallible love, you know, just how patient they are? Or how frustrated they get when they try to explain something to somebody who can't possibly comprehend. How many of you have sat down and tried to do like math homework with your kid at some point and you just lose your patience in like 30 seconds? How, how do you not understand this? But that's God. And to God, both the what and the why, they matter equally. 
Who can compete with that? Verse 3, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Now, this is where things get really interesting. I want you to notice the paradox in this verse, and I think most of us probably missed it. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. It's like, I'm doing the work, I'm doing all the planning, and he's like, oh, I'll do it. He's like, you do it. I'll do it. Oh, I'm doing it. Why don't you do it? That's the paradox in this verse. All this thinking and planning and doing, these are acts that reflect my agency as a human being, my requirement to try to control and to be responsible. But what God is saying here, I'm going to show this uh, in another ver- a couple of other verses too, all of this uh, sense of responsibility that I have, this action that I take, all of these God designed, hardwired for these traits to be nourished by me trusting in God and committing them to God, not to be antithetical to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? In our human brain, we think if I do it, God doesn't have to do it. And God says, no, no, the only way you can do it is if I do it. The only way you can actually take responsibility is if you become passive and trust me. The only way you can be active is by being passive. The only way you take it on is by putting it on me. That's how that works. The more God is, the more I am activated to be what I am. This is the paradox in this passage and in the scriptures, in fact, that somehow grace and works are complementary and not oppositional. That if you really believe in grace, if God is gracious and it's really him who does everything, then you are going to do everything. That if grace is true, your works are true. And that's the only way that works, is if God is the one who is working. As trust increases, responsibility also increases. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13 says the same thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, pretend there's a period there. If the verse ended right there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what would you think? I got to do it. I got to work this out. It's all on me, up to me. It's my show, my work, my doing. That's what matters. And then Paul says, for or because it is God who is at work in you. Because God is working, you work it out. If God wasn't working, you actually couldn't work it out. Where does my work draw its energy from? What's the fuel that I run on? It's God's sovereignty. The fact that God is in control helps me to try to get some control in my life. The fact that God is responsible helps me to be responsible. The fact that God says, I will answer your prayers, causes me to pray. The fact that God is active makes me active. This is the paradox of life. That if I know I'm going to win the race. I'm going to run so as to win. 
So for those of you who didn't understand that, here's a little graph. As trust increases, your responsibility increases. That actually the more you trust God, the more it sometimes looks like you're trusting in yourself. That the more God is the one who's planning your life out, the better you become at planning out your life. And you kind of got to think about your wiring a little bit. When somebody believes in you, does it cause you to act even more? What if somebody says, you can't do anything? You're incapable. That actually shuts you down. And so the fact that God says, I have guaranteed victory for you, causes you to run even harder. And I, I remember feeling this. I love the Chicago Marathon, not just because it's flat, but it's got the best crowd in all the marathons as, as far as I'm concerned. Because every inch of the entire 26.2 miles are lined with enthusiastic, cheering crowds. I've run marathons where there are just miles of deadness. But when people on the sidelines go, Peter, because I write my name on my chest, Peter, you can do it. You're going to do it. I go, I can do it. Why does that work? Because when I trust, when I believe, when I know, then I do. Then I go. Then I work. Then I plan. This is how we're wired. When somebody says, I love you just as you are. Oh, I want to change so bad. Because I want to I live up to that love. I want to be worthy of that love. I want to be lovable even if I could never be. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How paradoxical is that? That if God is kind, then we change? That makes no sense at all. That if God accepts us, then I begin to really transform? What the heck is going on? If you don't understand this, you're not understanding how human beings are wired. You would think the threats work, the negativity is what motivates, but the opposite is true. We're just like dogs. Positive affirmations, positive reinforcements cause us to do all the tricks. Um, Matthew 25, 25 to 26 says this. This is a story that Jesus tells of a servant who was left with some money to invest by his master, and the master goes away, and the master comes back. And one of the three servants to whom was charged... Uh, to invest, says this, I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Did you catch it? Fear and laziness have a relationship. That opposite of love, if you are afraid, it becomes the engine of laziness. It causes laziness. As fear increases, laziness increases. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. 
See, on the outside, especially on the front end, action can look like the same thing. That there's one person who's motivated by love because they're already loved, because they've already won, because they already are set. They're doing all this work. It, in, it activates their sense of responsibility and agency. And then there's another person who at the center of their heart, they're afraid. It's not really a trust in God, but it's, it's kind of a survival mechanism. And it can look the same, but eventually the graphs diverge. And the one who's motivated by fear begins to taper down. And the one who's motivated by love starts rocketing up and to the right. Uh, so here are some uh, graphs to summarize all of this. Uh, as fear increases, ultimately, responsibility decreases. That it leads to a kind of paralysis and depression and passivity and escape and avoidance. That's what fear does. Opposite to that, as grace increases, our works increase. Some examples of this. The more you pray, the more you act. Now, if you're praying but not acting, what does that mean? You're not actually praying. You're just being afraid. I would throw this in here, that the more you believe in theology, in God, who created the world and all the laws that govern the world, the more you actually believe in science. Because who created science? Science isn't separate from what God created or even how God created necessarily. What about heaven? The more you believe in heaven, the better you'll take care of the earth. Because the very best citizens of heaven make the best citizens of earth. Revelation says heaven is coming down to earth. That somehow there's going to be a new earth. That this earth, this planet, the very same physicality of this planet is somehow going to persist into eternity. And we're going to live here. And you understand that if you understand how heaven works. And so you care about the earth better than anyone who doesn't believe in heaven. Not because you might lose the earth, but because you have to deal with it for the rest of your life and beyond. And then we get to another paradox. That the more you actually love someone, the more you have to give them autonomy. The more you have to let them be and let them go. And if you ever try to love anyone, you know this is true. And this is why God gives us freedom. God gives us agency to begin with. That somehow, God says, I'm going to hope and I'm going to work in your life so that you understand what it means to be free. I have to let you go. So this is my way of uh, closing out with a story. Uh, I think most of you uh, at this point know that uh, I've decided to transition out of our church uh, in my role as the lead pastor. And a letter went out on Tuesday and I'm not sure if anybody received it. There are copies, uh, hard copies available if you would uh, like to read that. But I wanted to tell that story a little bit as my way of uh, sort of addressing it publicly, but also as it fits into this idea of plans and the way that man's plans don't know uh, what all of God's plans um, were. So uh, three things. Number one, 
Um, I've never been a person in my 24 years of being in ministry, I've never been a person who's worked uh, in the church before. You know, I've always been somebody who worked on the church. When I was a high school student, I had a complaint about my parents' church. And so I left that church and went to an inner city church where more of my ideals as a young teenager were being practiced. And that was my way of working on the church. I was never really part of that church. I just was happy that this church functioned that way. And then when I went to uh, college, I, uh, there were 36 Christian groups on campus. And uh, I was part of InterVarsity and very involved. Uh, but I really sort of critiqued all the 36 groups on campus. I wanted the groups to work right. And so much so that I dropped my pre-med track and I decided to go to seminary. And the very first church that I worked at was the church that I was trying to start because I was always working on the church and not really in the church. And then I would set up that church and then feel like, okay, that's headed the right way. And then I went and started another church. And then I would set that up. And then I went to another church, set that up, went to another church. I did this six times working on the church. And then I was helping other people work on the church when I became the associate superintendent of the East Coast Conference with our denomination. And then officially working on the church. And then I went to be the national director of church planning for our denomination. And that was really helping people work on churches by starting brand new churches. And then that was a crazy life because I was traveling so much and I really wanted to be more uh, uh, rhythmic and rooted. And there was some deeper need for a community that I wanted to belong to. And then I found myself here. And this kind of fit because this was a turnaround church that I was invited to uh, work in. And so this was being in the church, but really working on the church. And um, about three years ago, I really tried to uh, ask the question, can I be in the church? Can I be a pastor in the church and just be with people, walk with people, start pulling in my, uh, my orbit, you know, do I have to go interstellar or can I stay close? Can this be the sun around which I revolve? That was the big question I was wrestling with. And I think part of that uh, was challenged because, uh, number two, I've always been on a journey internally to try to find a home. I am an Im immigrant, uh, immigrated from South Korea, and then more recently I found out that I'm only half Korean. And so I feel so, like, confused racially. Like, I don't know what I am racially. And I've always been looking for a cultural home, but now I'm looking for a racial home, too. Um, and I was also looking for a physical place, a physical home. And so many things about this church call to my heart in these regards. Because I was always working on the church and because I was always starting churches, I've never experienced the reciprocity that I felt here. I felt seen here. I felt loved here. I felt like people were wanting to invest in me and not just get things out of me. And that felt so good. So many times I was telling Julie, gosh, I just really want to be here. I want to be here. And that started about three years ago. And I think I was, now looking back, I was saying those things because I was feeling like I'm supposed to go. 
And so two years ago, a year uh, of saying that, I uh, tried to quit here, actually. You know, I was uh, deciding that I need to go. This just doesn't fit. I don't know how to be a local church pastor, being pastoral, trying to do the day-to-day work of a local church. It just, just feels so misfit for me. And Julie said, well, hold on, Peter. You still bring a lot of value, so let's try an experiment. She had this idea where maybe I try splitting my time. And so I started working with the conference. Uh, I think most of you knew that. And so for the last two years, I've been uh, in a split role, half-time here and half-time at the conference, more or less. But I think that was a good experiment because it helped all of us to know that I don't really fit sufficiently. And there's a part of me that just starts kicking in. And I want to make way for somebody who fits, somebody who can lead the staff and somebody who can do the day-to-day and be pastoral. And all the time, the whole time, this church, I want you to know, was trying to help me to stay. They invested in my pastoral gifts. They said, Peter, you're weak in that, so let's shore that up. And they, they had me go through coaching school for two years. You know, and that was really, really helpful. It really helped me, gave me tools to know how to work on the church. And then they, and they said, Peter, you love education. You know, yeah, you can study psychology. There's so many things this church did uh, to love me and to see me. And for that, I will always, always be grateful. But after everything has been added up, I have come to the conclusion that it's time for me to go. Um, the verse that I keep thinking about over and over again is there's this random man named Simeon, and this whole saga is playing out with Jesus coming to earth and being born and escaping and then surviving and then finally being brought to the temple. And there's this random man named Simeon who's been waiting for the birth of the Messiah. And then finally he beholds the baby Jesus. He takes him, Scripture says, and holds him. And then he prays the prayer. He says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. And so that's my prayer, that you would understand that you forgive me for my trespasses and you will let me go. Please let your servant depart in peace. So I say to you, many, many are the plans and the hopes and the attempts and the effort in a man's heart, but it is the Lord who ultimately determines his steps. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your grace towards us, and I do pray that this grace, this kindness, this sovereignty would cause us to act all the more to do the works you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.